Hi, welcome to the theory of the postdoc evolution, the podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University, Belfast. This is episode 30, which features an online interview recorded in June 2023. The interview is carried out by Dr. Alison Garden, a Future Leaders Fellow in the School of Arts, English and Languages, who talks to Dr. Eliza McGee about her career and role in the National Archives. So I'm delighted to have Eliza with us today. Dr. Eliza McKee is a social historian of dress, consumption and material culture in 19th and 20th century Ireland. Eliza started working at the National Archives of the UK in London in March 2022, joining a team of historians who specialise in different areas of history that connect the National Archives collections. Her job title is Principal Researcher at Northern Ireland Records, And at the archives, Eliza is focusing on historical research into records relating to Northern Ireland and modern Ireland. Before joining the National Archives in 2022, Eliza completed her PhD at Queen's University Belfast. She has extensive experience working in curatorial and archival roles, which we'll chat about later. Eliza has published widely and received numerous prizes, including a very exciting new development that I'm sure Eliza will tell us about a bit later. You can find her on Twitter at Eliza Mickey. I'd also like to make clear at this point that Eliza is speaking in a personal capacity, sharing her own thoughts and experiences and not on behalf of the National Archives. So, Eliza, to start with the first question, most people would have heard about the UK National Archives, but could you introduce what they do in a nutshell for us, please? Yeah, no problem. So, in a nutshell, we basically archive, provide access to and preserve the UK government's records, so historical records. We've got things dating back a thousand years. Um, So, all records created by government departments that are part of the UK central government come to the National Archives and our role is, is dual preservation and access. Fantastic. So and what are the archives trying to achieve and how? I suppose it connects to that. So we need to make sure the, the historical record survives and so there's the Public Record Act, which there's there's different public record acts for each sort of national archive. So there's, a, there's an act for PRONI, there's the same in the Republic of Ireland for the National Archives there. And it stipulates really all the the main functions that we have in preserving the records but it's also things like providing you know we have an FOI team that are providing um, access to closed records that people can put in their FOI requests so we maintain these sort of active relationships with government departments to ensure the transfer of records here to the National Archives and sort of maintaining those relationships work over time and then there are the sort of fun projects um, some teams of historians working on you know bigger funding bids and things with universities to 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 create sort of access to the collections in new ways that maybe for the public through big AHRC funding bids things like that um and there's a, an engagement team an education team that provide you know sort of school out level outputs for children to engage them in collections so really sort of like multi-level it depends what team you're in what kind of work you're focusing on so yeah we have many, many teams focusing on a different kinds of access to the collections at all ages and education levels, I would say. Thank you. And when you say FOI, freedom of information. Mm-hmm. Right. Brilliant. Uh, so how is it to work for the UK National Archives? It's good. It's very different from a university setting. Obviously, you have this institutional priorities that might be different from your own as a researcher. So as a historian, you we're civil servants, so you sign the civil service code. So there is I'm in this team of historians. So for us, 
you have to bear that relationship in mind. So you have a role as a civil servant of impartiality and you know we are part of the UK government and so that has a you know a relation depending on what kind of area of history you're working in that could bring things up for you you have you can't just write whatever you want to write you now have a sort of um you've signed the civil service code and you need to behave appropriately so there's that kind of interesting um relationship which is a, a bit different than if you're working in a university and you have much more um yeah freedom to 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 in your research so you have to kind of bear in that in mind those more institutional priorities and the relationship that you have um to to your institution and as a civil servant and you have to honor that so that that's um been a, an interesting dynamic but um also a great one to use your skills and knowledge in a in a, in a different way and providing they really care about your research specialty here and try to make as much use of that as they can so you do feel respected for what you know um which is very positive uh, that sounds fantastic and it'd be interesting to chat a little bit more about the, the difference between doing research for an institution and doing personal research in, in university, which I think we might get onto in a wee bit. Um, but I'm conscious of you talking about different other teams in the archive, so I'm, I'm wondering, apart from roles like yours, what other kinds of roles people with a PhD might go on to do in, in an organisation like the National Archives? Okay, so there's a lot of people with PhDs here. There's a huge number and they really respect that level of research knowledge. Um, so yes, there's that team of historians. It's a collection expertise and engagement team. So that's with all these different specialists in different historical areas. But also the conservation team has a high number of PhDs and who do research in um, new conservation and preservation techniques for historical records so that could be relevant for people in the sciences or I don't know we're arts and humanities but even like archaeologists and things like that that could be relevant um there's researchers who come from a more archival perspective as well who you know there's teams like preserving digital records teams working on you know so kind of more from that archival point of view this catalogers and, and and sort of records management and researchers in the organization as well the foi team so freedom of information you do it's freedom of information requests and historical records so your historical knowledge is really valued there um so really across, across the whole organization there are actually PhDs. so i keep an eye out they respect like i say that level of research knowledge there's also a research and academic engagement team which is probably the other most importantly relevant area um so there's an uh, a collections research manager archives research manager all the different areas that are that we cover there's a team and all of that, that team have phds um, and they all have an area of focus that they're trying to push new research for the national archives in and building collaborations with universities and they work quite a lot with the collection expertise team as well as a bit of overlap there but we're an independent research organization. So we can put in big funding bids and bring in big AHRC funding bids or other, you know, um, other big funding bodies, um, especially in collaboration with university partners. And it's something we're really trying to push. So keep an eye out for both projects that we're hosting with a university. Sometimes the postdocs come, come up, we yearly are, are recruiting researchers on different projects that we've got ongoing. And if you want to put in a big funding bid with TNA, the research team will always be interested in developing those projects. We're always trying to build 
partnerships, especially with regional partners, because we have quite good relationships in London and the southeast, but are trying to be more national, you know, and like cover more like bigger, bigger space um, with those collaborations. So there's many ways in which your PhD could be useful here, I think. Now that's fascinating. I'm sure lots of people didn't hear, wouldn't have known that the National Archives can apply for funding in their own right and you can work with academic space there. Mm. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about your, your role, Eliza, and what you might be doing in a typical day? So what, what your average Wednesday might look like if you weren't taking part in this in this call? So some of the work I do, actually, most of it is um, designated official sensitive, so I can't tell you too much, too many specifics, but I will say that anything that comes down about Northern Ireland or modern Ireland will come to me. So um, it involves a lot of research in open and closed records. And at the minute, there's quite a lot of troubles related research um, because that's a, a big priority that's coming down. Um, I wrote I re write research guides for the National Archives website to enable access to those collections and really do a lot of research on what we have on a specific topic. So one went live recently on the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, making digitization plans for records that could be um could be digitized um from from our collections um answering inquiries on open and closed records processing a lot of research for for government things like that so can't speak too specifically but it can be very varied but a lot of hands-on work with the records um i'm looking at many many files every day i think i've looked through 2000 in the last six months um, so that gives you a bit of a sense of scale. <laughs> wow, 2000. Um, yeah. So I suppose this leads me on to which part of your job do you find the most challenging? It sounds like there are lots of aspects that could potentially be be challenging mm -hmm. for a researcher. I would say I don't feel like there's enough hours in the day, to be honest. And sometimes, you know, you what's a great thing about here, they they do only want you to work your set hours. You know, there's a very good work-life balance compared to academia. But I also have many, many varied projects. So sort of like managing that and dipping in and out of a few hours on this, a few hours on that and lots of meetings and, you know, things like that. I think kind of dividing up the day and getting sort of focused time on some of the work is a challenge and new things can kind of pop in all the time. And you have to really be good at reprioritizing your workload, which I think a PhD can train you very well for. Um, so I'd say yeah, just all the, the things you're juggling um and finding enough hours in the day to get proper work done <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you a bit about work-life balance because it's something that comes up so much of people who are keen to leave academia so you mentioned you think that the balance is better but do you find that you have the avail the the option to travel perhaps with your job and how many hours per week might you work and can you work flexibly um, I think the balance is much better because the institution pushes that. So, you know, one of the great things about the civil service is that, you know, lots of, you know, hard work has been done to ensure that there are very, you know, flexible working patterns and set working hours. So I'm on a 41 hour contract. We don't get paid for our lunch break, but, you know, it's full 40, 40 minutes or something gets taken off you, but it's a seven hour, 12 minute day. So it's very, you know, nine to five, but they will take flexible kind of start and end times, um, which is very good. Um, we used to have flex time, which we lost during the pandemic, but 
you know there's a lot of flexibility about when you when you begin and end around your own priority like family priorities and things like that and they're very good with stuff like that um so yeah it's, it is a much better balance and we're encouraged not to take work home and not to be working really late at night to take our annual leave and not check our emails nobody's going to be expecting to hear from you in fact your boss will probably tell you why did why did I hear from you uh, you're on leave so I think you know there's a very good approach that we obviously get our public holidays and we take them um so I'd say that balance is very good but the downside of that is that you know when I want to do my own research which I still actively am research you know do my own research I do that all in my own time so I don't have time and work to do that so that's where I do use my evenings and weekends if I want to do any of my own research which I still am active so uh, that's a challenge but that's my own choice um to do that um travel I don't really get to travel in in my role because there's so much to do on site but some members of the team do um in collection expertise and they're often doing document displays and, and talks across government or in parliament and things like that or going and doing events with regional partners so it depends what role you're in I would say for travel okay thanks so much Eliza I'm going to ask you a few questions now about your your career journey to to use the phrase and so could you tell us a bit about your academic background please so what degrees you did and where and what the focus of your research within the university has been on yeah so I did a long route of I just started paying tax you know I'm sure my parents are thrilled and I'm finally she's got a job um so I did fashion design and design history first of all, well no hang on I did an art foundation year and then I went and did fashion design design history and then I hated industry so then I came back and did my other favorite subject which was history at Queen's and um then I did an Irish history master's and then got offered PhD funding and panicked that I'd never had a job and so took a job in parliament in the archives there started getting like building up archival um, and curatorial experience but then went and did a master's in archives and records management at Liverpool to qualify but couldn't stop thinking about my PhD topic so ended up coming back to Queen's and doing my PhD which is all about was all about um clothing of the lower classes in Ireland in the 19th century which kind of fused my interests so dress and design history Irish history social history so that it all made sense to me um and during that I was did like lots of curatorial work and archival work in different institutions as well building up that other kind of experience um outside of the academy and then was applying for postdocs and applied for this research job at the National Archives and of all the things I applied for this is the one that I got and I needed a job immediately at the end of my PhD so this is the one I took uh, that's what I was going to ask you actually so um when you were doing your PhD uh were you looking actively looking and preparing for and thinking about an academic career or were you always quite open-minded I I wanted an academic career and I still you know, would like that and I'm open-minded to that but I knew what the academic job market was like and in 2015 when I didn't take PhD funding the first time I, one of the reasons I wanted to build up more experience was because I could see things kind of in collapse um, and knew that I had to diversify for success. Um, and I'm not from, you know, a wealthy background or, you know, with lots of options in that regard. So I knew I had to be employable and employed immediately. So, um, yeah, I started building up that experience quite early on and I 
applied in the last year of my PhD, I started applying for things in the April and I handed in the December. Um, I started putting in, you know, postdoctoral applications and this job I applied for in August and interviewed in the September. And I was supposed to start in December 2021. But my security clearance took six months and I didn't start till March. And I, I was in a difficult position because I'd already given up my house. So I won't glamorize it. It looks like I've been really successful, but I was in a really difficult position at the end of my PhD where I had the job. Um, I gave up my house and I was technically homeless, like couch surfing with friends while I was trying to hand in my PhD, move all my things around, dodging COVID, waiting for my security clearance to come through. So I kind of hid that at the time. But, you know, it, sometimes it looks like people are being really successful at the end of their PhD and they have a job to go to. But you don't quite know the circumstances they're in. So, you know, I'd say you know, it's good to be as organized as you can, depending on your circumstances. But sometimes even when you have a job, things can come up like a security clearance taking a long time. Um, yeah, so it was it was a difficult situation, actually the hardest situation I've ever been in, I think. Um, so, yeah, but I did start the job eventually. Thank goodness. Yeah. So. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Eliza. I think it's really important that we uh, demystify these stories of success because I know so many people will have similar situations or experiences that they're going through at the moment. You're talking about uh, being open to maybe having a kind of flexible career, moving back and forth potentially, um, or maybe. And um, I know you've just had some exciting recent success. You've been talking about doing research in your own time. So could you share that with us and perhaps talk about how you picture your career progressing with the National Archive and balancing your own research profile? Yeah, so the news Alison's talking about is I found out that I got a Fulbright Scholar Award, which is in US, UK. Um, that's the one I applied to, but Fulbright have these kind of collaborative relationships with lots of different places and you can apply when you're um, in Northern Ireland, you can apply for the US Ireland one or the US UK one. Um, so yeah, so I'll be going to NYU and to the Irish Studies Institute for just under a year. Um, to do a new research project so yeah I kept applying for things because my contract here was initially just a year and then I got extended but I'm still on a temporary contract so I've had to sort of keep applying for different things that come up and see where things take me and to be honest that was the pipe dream application which I thought I didn't stand a chance for and the things that I thought that I would stand a chance for including like an internal job here that was permanent I didn't get so I would say balance the realistic applications with a few pipe dreams because you have no idea what you're going to be successful with um yeah so I, I I won't lie like I've been balancing a lot of work outside of my job in my own time putting in these applications because I'm on a temporary contract um but it has paid off um so now I have options which is really nice um to to take this um and I how do I see my career going I think places are more open than ever to people with quite flexible careers moving in and out of academia into other independent research organizations into kind of curatorial archival fields um, and I think that it won't jeopardize me either way in academia or in certainly where I work currently they would love me to come back with that you know additional knowledge um, you know if another position comes up so yeah, I think it just makes you more dynamic and able to apply your research in different contexts and settings. I think it strengthens you and it's good sometimes to get a break from each type of institution and sort of um, throw yourself into a new challenge. So, 
Definitely. And I also know that um, I've attended a few meetings recently, or not personal meetings, but been in events where uh, Ottilie Meyer, the head of UKRI, has been talking about strategic priorities for the organisation. And she's very keen to cultivate a research environment where people can move between working for cultural institutions, industry, universities, business. And I think you're absolutely right that it will only serve you in good stead, Eliza. So I have one final question, and that is, uh, what kind of profile do you think a postdoc or someone completing a PhD should have to be able to enjoy your role and be competitive for similar positions? Yeah, I would say um, here, you know, it's good to have some publications, but it's not as essential as in an academic role or in a, you know, in a postdoc role. I think like in a university setting where, you know, someone might have 10 publications and you're up against that as a new PhD. Um, but what I would say here is really awareness of how archives and collections work and manage. And I really think about that. Like think about the priorities of an organization like this versus what, say, um, your priorities might be in a university and, and showing awareness of how things work differently. So if you've done research within collections and, and you're interviewed here, really show that they're interested to know what you know and how also interested to know how you engage the public, because we are a public service as well and we're also a government service. So how you um, engage with communities or how you engage with different audiences to have impact and like build positive relationships um, in whatever kind of research you do that's like really things to big up in your interview and to like build into your CV I think across the organization that will stand you out but things like you know how many publications you have are slightly less important here and depending on what role you're going for but really how you engage publicly and how you have impact with people and different audiences is something to really focus on. Fantastic. Thanks, Eliza. How did you find balancing applying for jobs and completing your PhD at the same time? Oh, um, I'm not sure how well I did it. Um, so I was advised by supervisors to just wait until I'd handed in, but I personally just was not in that financial position and I couldn't um, go home at the end of my PhD. My family were in Belfast, but um, yeah, it's complicated, but just sort of um, family circumstances I couldn't go back home so I really had to it was like a needs must like I have to apply and when when you have to you find a way of doing it <laughs> um, late nights in the office and you know engaging in writing groups like that I did with you Alison um, putting in applications and asking friends to read the applications when they had spare time it was a challenge to be honest um, but I think when you really are in a position where you have to be working um, you, you you find the time um I did some weekend work which I tried not to do during my PhD but at that end you know that final final hurdles I spent quite a lot of weekends doing job applications and editing my PhD during the week things like that um yeah and I did start to get success with interviews so I didn't like overwhelm myself with the applications, but I, I did put in quite a few at the same time. And when I found and when I was offered a job, I stopped applying and just the last three months were finished the thesis, head down, go, go, go. And I think something comes over you when you're in the last throes of finishing your PhD where you're just like a machine. Well, I was, I was just like a machine. I would lock myself in the office and say I couldn't go home until I cut, you know, 4,000 words from my thesis or something. I just started doing it. Something came over me that I needed it to be finished. And I was so done with reading it for the hundredth time that I just, 
it, something happened to me where I just started being really snappy with my decisions in a way I'd never been during the the previous three years so yeah I'd say yeah needs must had to so I worked the weekends and longer than I wanted to and then when I got a job I stopped and just focused all in on the, the thesis great thank you if you had one final top tip for applicants who are thinking about a similar type of position of yours to yours what would that be um one piece of advice well I'd say if it would be really good to if you haven't already like it's good to have some kind of experience on your CV in a kind of curatorial or archival role if you don't have it if you if you don't have the time to do that think about how you have worked with collections or as I said before with communities during your PhD and make the most of that in your job applications really push that experience because they do they do like people to have some kind of um work experience as well but you'll probably have done that relevant experience during your PhD that you can use use what you have is what I would say and twist it for a non-academic audience um, you can always find a way of using all the experience you've built up during your PhD for non-academic jobs you just have to change your language slightly that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Eliza. And uh, congratulations on your Fulbright success. We look forward to seeing what you get up to and following your journey. And um, to just to reiterate, if you want to find out about more about Eliza and her brilliant research, then do check out her Twitter profile at Eliza McKee. And uh, thank you so much again, Eliza, for joining us. Thanks for listening to this interview. If you enjoyed it, I advise you to listen to episode 31, which features another interview Alison carried out on the same day with Dr. Manuela Moser from the Kirch Festival. For more detail, visit our website at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye!